If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to History's Greatest Cities. Exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan. And in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness and we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Barry Hatton. Barry is an author and journalist who's been based in Lisbon for nearly 40 years. His latest book is Queen of the Sea, A History of Lisbon, published by C. Hurst & Co. Coveted by Romans, Germanic tribes and Islamic, Spanish and French forces and devastated by earthquakes, Lisbon has risen, fallen and risen again many times over the centuries. Today, Barry will guide us through the city's tumultuous past, visiting some of the key places that reveal aspects of its diverse heritage. We'll also meet some of the people who helped shape the city on the Tagus estuary and discover a few less well-known sites to explore. Barry, welcome. Thank you, Paul. Um, what first brought you to Lisbon and what is it that keeps you excited about the city and its culture today? Well, that's quite a big question in terms of what first brought me to Lisbon. It's a bit of a long story. The short version is that I, I graduated from university in the summer of 85 from King's College London, where I studied German and French, actually, not Portuguese. But for one reason or another, I actually found myself to be quite sort of at a loss. A job that I had waiting for me fell through when the company went bankrupt, left me high and dry. So on a wing and a prayer, I sort of migrated to Portugal with a friend of mine with a one-way train ticket from uh, London Victoria Station to Lisbon on April Fool's Day of 1986. I wanted to come here because I'd been here twice on interrail to Lisbon, just for brief visits, brief stops. But I, I was enchanted by the city. I had quite a romantic idea of it in the sense that I didn't know much about it. Of course, Lisbon at that time was really quite little known in, in Europe and uh, not very talked about. What I found here is, is that Lisbon's secret is, is, is sort of the secret is in the mix, the sort of the peaceful, serene mix, especially in the in the older quarters, like around the castle, the, you know, the old Moorish quarters, Alfama, Mordoria, where the Moors lived. Lisbon still has that kind of cultural broth, which is is quite 
inspiring in a way. It's, it's, it's got a very special, specially fluid blend of, of cultures. Even in the, in the small parishes in the centre of the city, you, you have small parishes which have more than 50 different resident nationalities. So it's enchanting in that sense. It, these days, it still has a vibrant cultural scene, which it didn't always have. I should also mention that my wife is Portuguese, which is one of the reasons I stayed. <laughs> I should admit that. Uh, but as I say, you know, I arrived in 1986, which has turned out to be a, a watershed year, which is actually going to be an important uh, aspect of what we're going to talk about today. Great. Well, that's a bit of personal history. Let's move on to the, the history of the city itself. So legend has it, I understand, that the Greek hero Ulysses founded Lisbon on his voyages after Troy. But what do we actually know about the earliest inhabitants of the area? Well, the Ulysses legend is actually fanciful, and just a quick bit of fact-checking sort of quickly disabuses us of any notion about that. Obviously, we had, just like across the whole Iberian Peninsula, we had nomadic hunters and then the Bronze Age and Iron Age settlers. The thing is that Lisbon was always going to be a draw for a settlement. It ticked all the right boxes. It's got a a high, steep-sided hill. Uh, There's a bountiful river right next to it. There's a large natural harbour. It's where one of Europe's longest rivers uh, meets the world's second largest ocean, of course. It's also because it has a, its mouth tapers, becomes quite narrow. It's about two kilometers across, then opens up into a very large bay called the, the Sea of Straw. And where the mouth tapers, that's where the bridge is, the, the famous bridge that looks just like the Golden Gate Bridge in, in San Francisco. As I said, 1986, as unlikely as it sounds, was a key year. I'll tell you why, because that's the year that Portugal joined the uh, European Economic Community, which is now called the European Union, of course. That brought a cash bonanza to a country that was very poor at the time, relatively poor in financial terms, at least. All that money allowed a huge public works program. The Portuguese, basically, of the, the city began digging extending the uh, the underground network, etc., building skyscrapers and what have you. And as they went down, they found a lot. Now, we'd always known that the Phoenicians uh, had a fortified settlement here of some type in the 7th century BC. But a dig in 2014 produced a pretty spectacular discovery in that it came across a Phoenician cemetery, which, of course, indicated that this was, in fact, uh, an important settlement. So that changed the way that period was looked at. And then the Romans, too, the same similar thing happened there, because the Romans had been here since 138 BC and stayed for over five centuries. They called the city Olisipo. They settled on the south-facing slope, coming down from the castle, from the castle hill. Uh, they had a fortification on top, and then the, the settlement came down to have a broader edge along the riverbank and made that triangular settlement, which you find uh, so often in, in southern Europe. They also built a, a defensive wall, which dates from the 4th century AD, um, which is built on top of, of course. It was good for the Romans because uh, the Tagus had lots of fish, especially the ones used for garum, the smelly fermented fish sauce. And on the back of that, and, and of course, because it was on, Lisbon was on a stop-off on, on the route north out of the Mediterranean to go to uh, the British Isles or, or to France, whatever. And it appears from that to have become a wealthy city, actually an important Roman town or city, if you like. And as I say, at the end of the last century, they were digging an underground extension uh, in Lisbon. And down in the central square called Rocio, Rocio Square, they found a large hippodrome six metres beneath it, a, a very big one, 190 metres long, uh, you know, the kind of thing we saw in, in, in Ben-Hur. It also had a, a Roman theatre for 3,000 people. The remnants of that can be visited now. There's not a, a great deal to see. There are Roman baths, unfortunately not with a museum. There are underground galleries through the centre of town, which are pumped out once a year for people to go down into the downtown area. So as I say, that, uh, that big influx of money helped Portugal or helped Lisbon uncover a lot of stuff from its past. So there are a few remnants of of Roman occupation there. You mentioned the the theatre that was discovered. I believe that's now in the Museum of Lisbon. Mm -hmm. People can visit now. Of course, Roman rule in Western Europe famously ended around the 4th, early 5th century with the arrival of tribes from the east. What, What happened to Lisbon at that time? Uh, it's hard to say, to be, to be frank. The Visigoths were here, for example, for about three centuries, but they left little trace. I mean, there's all there's nothing to show for it. There are some building structures outside of Lisbon, but there's very thin evidence of that period altogether, to be honest. 
the big watershed moment in the 8th century, of course, which affected the whole of the Iberian Peninsula, was the arrival of Islamic invaders from North Africa. How did that impact Lisbon and how did the city develop during the Moorish period? Mm, it's interesting because the, the Moorish times are really the first part of the, of the deep past, let's call it, that you can still feel today. Lisbon was taken by the Islamic forces in 714. They called the city Al-Ushbuna. They built a fortress on top of the Roman fortress, which is where the St. George's Castle currently stands, because the Portuguese then built on top of that. And that's where the whole Islamic flavor of the city stems from. You still have the distinctive sort of labyrinthine streets in the warren of the old town, like I mentioned, Alfama and Moradia. You know, there are places that can feel like a North African souk when you're, when you're walking through there. So it sort of conjures up a little bit of a flavor of what it must have been like. It offers lovely walks. I mean, it, it is hilly, of course, but it, because you, you go, as you go towards the castle, but, you know, you have these sort of flowery interior patios with fountains and, you know, splashes of flowers and the smell of grilling sardines outside on the street. And, you know, you have to duck under washing or, you know, brush it out of your way as you're walking down these narrow alleys. In fact, Lisbon must be the only European city where you find washing hanging out to dry like you know, 100 metres away from the main drag. Otherwise, I mean, there are some bits you can still glimpse as a Moorish city wall. There's still a bit of that standing. But on the whole, I think it, it, it helps just give the, the whole flavour to the city. I mean, I saw a film a while ago by the Swiss filmmaker Alain Tanner called In the White City from 1983. And that's a glimpse of the, of the Lisbon that I came across in 1986, that sort of shabby charm that it used to have before it started modernising in earnest. But even then, it's kept that flavour. I mean, Erasmus students, you know, the ones on student exchanges, they refer to Portugal as the Morocco of Europe. And they mean it flatteringly. I mean, it's almost as if you're in a grey zone between Europe and North Africa when you're in Lisbon. You know, it has very much that sort of sense of otherness. Well, that's certainly true, as you say. If you wander through those alleys of, of the Alfama down from the castle, the narrow winding lanes, it really feels like the Medina of Fez or Marrakesh or somewhere like that. So the Moorish rule began at the beginning of the 8th century. What was the status of Lisbon at that time? Was it a, a regional centre? Was it somewhere that was a base of trade? Uh, to some extent, yes. Of course, the the rest of the peninsula, I think, was what we now call Spain, of course, was was much more dominant. Lisbon never became a, a truly great city under the, under the Moors. It was small. Even though there were seafaring, I don't think the Moors were appreciated that much the fact that they could look out to the Atlantic, which was somewhere they couldn't go, of course. So in that sense, it was still a, a more, let's say, a minor city in terms of their domination of the, of the peninsula. Of course, the rest of Al-Andalusia, as you say, what we now know as Spain, was gradually taken by Christian rulers from the north over the following centuries, famously taking Granada in, in 1492. How did that Reconquista, as the, as the Spanish call it, affect Lisbon and what happened after that? Yeah, well, of course, we had the thrilling event, which was the, the siege of Lisbon in, in 1147, when the, the Moors were up there on top of the hill. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings when you read about it. I mean, you have this European coalition army was coming down from the north. They stopped off in Porto, where the bishop persuaded them to come and help King uh, Alfonso Enrique take Lisbon. He, he had very few men, really. So this crusader fleet, which was going to the Holy Land, you know, with about 12,000 English, French, German... Uh, Flemish crusaders, they came down to help the king. What we know of that is from mostly an English crusader's letter home, which is now held at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. His identity has long been the subject of debate, but he, he gives a thrilling account of what went on. I mean, they, the crusaders built two siege towers and uh, battering rams and catapults to attack the city walls. And this siege went on from July the 1st until late October, when the uh, Moors finally surrendered as the, as the coalition army was about to just break through the walls. And at that point, then, uh, once it was taken, the, uh, an Englishman, Gilbert of Hastings, uh, became Lisbon's first bishop. This whole thing was, I mean, it was apart from being a, a sort of a, a high point, a high watermark, if you like, of the quite wretched uh, Second Crusade, it was a pivotal event for Portugal. The Portuguese kingdom was only half a dozen years old at that point. And this prize, this great triumph in Lisbon, gave it a, gave it ballast, if you like. And it was a milestone in the Reconquista, as you say. One Portuguese historian said that the conquest of Lisbon wrote out the nation's birth certificate. Lisbon grew quite quickly after that. The next king, Dinesh, he added momentum, uh, extending the city walls. In fact, that's another find after 1986 on this 
EU money came in. In 2010, they were building beneath the Bank of Portugal in the downtown area, and they found a 30-meter stretch of the, of the wall that King Denise ordered to be built, and there's a little museum there now. One of the best sites from that period is undoubtedly, and one of my favorites in Lisbon, is the Carmo Church and Monastery in the downtown next to the Rocio Square. I mean, obviously, it's now a roofless ruin, but it has these soaring arches like ribs. It's very tall. It has a very elegant beauty, especially with the, you know, the blue sky as you look up through these stone ribs above you. That was started in 1389. It was ordered, built by a man who's arguably Portugal's greatest ever military leader, has played a key part in ensuring Portugal's survival as a nation. This man, uh, Nuno Álvares Pereira, he actually became the richest man in Portugal after the king, was a, a great national hero, but he gave all his wealth away and became a monk at the monastery once it was finished. He was in charge of the army when Portugal was fighting for its survival against Castile in the 1385 war. He helped put King João I on the throne. There was a major victory over close to the Spanish, what is now the Spanish border, the border with Spain, at Aljubarota in 1385, where the Portuguese had the help of English longbowmen and they defeated a much bigger Castile army, Castilian army. And that really galvanized Portugal, you know, showed this little country could prevail against the odds. And of course, very importantly, uh, King João I then married uh, Philippa of Lancaster, the daughter of John of Gaunt. And some of their children, including Henry the Navigator, would become what is called in Portugal the illustrious generation, you know, which is behind, you know, powered the, the age of exploration. So we've gone from a city that was taken from the Moors in the mid-12th century to a bustling, thriving capital with wealth and power. And the following centuries saw Lisbon and Portugal as a whole thrive on the global stage. Can you tell us a little bit about that period that's known as the that's a sort of golden age of exploration? In Portugal, they call it the age of discovery. But if you just step back for one moment, I mean, if you look at a map of Portugal, you can see that the, the country, once it was formed, is really was really hemmed into a corner. I mean, it had Castile on one side and it had the Atlantic on the other, sort of no way out. One of them was dangerous and treacherous and, and the other one was wet. The stars aligned for Portugal in a spectacular way that century, really. I mean, what drove the empire was technical ingenuity, geopolitical guile of its leaders and, and their daring ambition. I mean, Portugal did have great leaders, had an impressive naval architecture, you know, had these caravels, which are the swiftest craft on water, plus the, the naus, the galleons called caracks, the huge ships, transport ships. And the Portuguese quickly built up impressive knowledge of, of the winds and the ocean currents. They had mathematicians, some mathematicians, they invented astronomical instruments, such as a, a simplified version of the astrolabe. And of course, they were ultimately driven by a desire to become rich. But Lisbon was the big brain behind all of this. Henry the Navigator obviously had this school. We don't know to how, really how important that was down in Sagres, on the southwest tip of Portugal. But this is where Portugal's macrocephaly, to put it that way began and still holds true. You know, Lisbon's this great big head on, on Portugal. It seems, tends to suck everything up. But yeah, but Portugal projected power across the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea and beyond. They became the first Europeans to reach Japan in 1543. Of course, the upshot of all that was that back in Lisbon, it rained money. This all started, you know, in the early 15th century from 1415, the, the Portuguese went down hugging the African coast, exploring and, you know, discovering the Portuguese islands, Madeira and the Azores, with uh, King João II driving them ahead. Landmark milestone events were, you know, 1488, Bartolomeu Dias got around the Cape of Good Hope found his way through to the Indian Ocean. Then, of course, at the end of the 15th century, uh, Manuel I sent Vasco da Gama off from Belém, which is Bethlehem in Portuguese, which is just west of Lisbon, west of the city along the river. Then the, the next king, João II, he hatched the India plan, the famous India plan, very ambitious, to say the least, which was to, to divert the, the lucrative spice trade with the Orient through Lisbon instead of through Venice, so to bring it by sea instead of overland. There was a huge markup on the spices, of course, and uh, there was a huge profit involved here. King João III, known as the colonizer, he expanded things further. He stabilized Brazil, which you know was just the Portuguese dis discovered in in 1500. 
that's officially. The Portuguese were very cagey about this. They probably discovered it earlier than that, because when they were going out around the Cape, because of the winds, they sailed out towards Brazil and then came home hugging the African coast uh, to make the most of the winds. But but anyway, the, as you say, a large part of the 16th century was, was Lisbon and Portugal's heyday. Although having said that, the first half of the 18th century was also another high point. But there were, you know, the times of bounty. Portugal har- harvested vast wealth from the early, early days of the age of exploration. All the, the power and the riches were all concentrated overwhelmingly in Lisbon. So the city grew into one of the biggest and busiest ports uh, in Europe. It was like an Aladdin's cave of exotic goods from, from Africa and the Orient, in fact. You know, you had your gold and your silk and your jewels and your sugar and your spices, slaves, lots of slaves uh, from Africa, Chinese porcelain, Indian filigree, monkeys, parrots. I mean, Lisbon was the place to come and have a look at. It really was a Renaissance melting pot, because as well as Europeans, you had people coming back from these voyages from, from Africa, from India and Brazil. It was also a time of plenty for the church. Of course, the crown and the cross went together. Uh, on these on these voyages, churches and convents and, and monasteries multiplied in Lisbon and took most of the prominent locations in the city, you know, the hilltops. One important episode to keep in mind from this time is uh, was in uh, 1498, King Manuel I. He set in motion a plan to move out of the castle, which was the, where the royal family had always stayed, at the top of the hill in St. George's Castle, to move from there down to the riverside. And, and that really shifted the, the city's centre of gravity and just completely reshaped its growth. It's welded the city much more to the, to the river and to the sea. And the palace he built there called Pas de Ribeira, which no longer exists, which is something we'll come to a bit later on. The building of that triggered an urban revolution as this building became concentrated along the riverside. This palace was said to be one of the, the most luxurious and stunning Portuguese dwelling ever ever seen. It had artwork by old masters, around 70,000 books, elaborate royal chapel, and around it was all the, all the, were all the trappings of the you know of, of the empire. You know, the, there was India House, the royal mint, the royal armory, uh, with the palace at the centre of it all. You know the king could look out and, and, and see it all. When you've got all that power and wealth, you want to show it off. So. The Portuguese cortege at that time was quite a remarkable sight. I mean, as it went through the city of Lisbon, it was led by a rhinoceros, which was followed by five elephants, which were rigged out in, in gold brocade. Then there was an Arabian horse, uh, then a jaguar, and then the sovereign and his court, you know, with the trumpets and what have you. So, you know, Lisbon was where you came to see all the exotic things, you know, elephants and monkeys and gazelles and parrots and stuff. So, you know, these were the trophies of a conquering people. The greatest monument left, as I say, the, the palace is, is no more, but the greatest monument from that time, I'll explain why that's still standing later on, is the Geronimus Church and Monastery. That was King Manel I started building that. It was his big prestige project, and it's in the Manueline style, as we call it. It's very ornate style, and it's, it's now one of Portugal's signature buildings. It's one of the city's greatest gems. It, it was on a stunning scale, even now, but looking at the back time, it was, it, it was, it was massive. It's right by the river. As, as ships sailed up into Lisbon, they had to go past it, and you know, it sent out this message saying, you know, we are very rich and, uh, and very pious. So at that time, Lisbon has, as you say, become hugely wealthy. I believe one of the most wealthy cities in Europe and was bringing in huge amounts of riches, spices, goods from all over the world. How did that so-called golden age of discovery end and how did Lisbon fare over the following century or so? Yeah, well, after flying so high, Lisbon came down to earth with a bang. It was because of a sort of a quixotic young king's unwise military adventure in North Africa uh, that handed the keys of the kingdom in the end to Spain or to Castile. King Sebastian, he acceded to the throne when he turned 14 in, in 1568, and he, he reigned for only 10 years before his death on the battlefield in, in North Africa. He, he was young. I mean, he was seduced by tales of chivalry and, and the glorious feats of, the, of his royal ancestors. He actually ordered the rebuilding of the old royal quarters up in the castle, and in fact was the last Portuguese monarch to sleep there. 
So, but what happened was Lisbon went from the seat of the royal court and an imperial capital to a, really a provincial city, because once he was gone, suddenly Portugal was up for grabs. There were royal ties between the you know the royal houses on, on both sides of the border. King Felipe II of Spain was a grandson of of King Manuel I. His mother was Isabella of Portugal, of course, the wife of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and so he won the throne and became Felipe I of Portugal as well. And after you know two hundred years of a very close treaty relationship with England through the Treaty of Windsor, Portugal and Lisbon would now came under Spain's umbrella, which you know changed changed everything around. And of course, the you know the Invincible Armada sailed out of the Tagus in in fifteen eighty eight on its way to the Channel. Having said that, there's a very faint footprint of Spanish rule in Lisbon. They mostly ignored Lisbon and Portugal. I mean, even like now, and if you go to Spain, you don't you don't hear much about Portugal. In fact, if you see the weather forecast on Spanish TV, there's this little sort of re- rectangle down in the bottom left uh, corner, which is empty, and that's Portugal. What's left standing of that time is that most noticeably is the San Vicente de Fora uh, church and monastery, a massive building. It was Felipe's pet project, it's still standing. It's a very sober, imposing building. It has two towers at the front to make it look like a, a cathedral. But, you know, all this neglect of Portugal, you know, is completely overlooked by the Spanish monarchy. That gradually was sort of groundswell against Spanish rule. And there was a, a group called the Forty Conspirators in, in Portugal who plotted against the Spanish rule. And that all came to an end in 1640 with the uh, what we call now, what we still call the, the Day of Restoration of Independence, which is still a bank holiday on December the 1st. That change opened a new chapter, another new chapter for, for Lisbon. It got a big new push then shortly after that, with, you know, well, later that century rather, with, with gold from Brazil. The first shipment arrived in 1699, arrived in Lisbon. There's a legendary gold nugget which was mined in Brazil in 1732 and weighed more than 20 kilograms. All of that money then, as I say, this sort of second period of huge wealth, helped pay for some major projects such as the Lisbon Aqueduct, which still stands. And really, the Portuguese crown, even during the days of, of uh, you know, the heyday of, of, of the discoveries or the age of exploration, even, you know, it was much richer now than it was then. It led to opulence and flamboyant consumption under King João V. His son, King José, built a, a glittering, grandiose opera house by, by the Riverside Palace, and it was equal to any in the rest of Europe. Unfortunately, it would last only uh, 215 days because uh, something terrible would happen by the end of the year. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Once again, Lisbon's riding high. In the middle of the 18th century, something happened that transformed Lisbon arguably more dramatically than anything over the past few centuries. Can you tell us about the earthquake of 1755 and its aftermath? Yeah, well, there will always be a before and an after of, uh, you know, of, in Lisbon's history of that day, you know, All Saints Day, November the 1st in, in 1755, because so much was lost. I mean, it was, it was Lisbon's darkest day. It was one of the biggest, if not the strongest earthquakes to strike Europe in modern times. And Lisbon suffered three violent jolts uh, in quick succession followed by a tsunami that, that rolled up the Tagus. It was the height of a double-decker bus. A six-day fire, which turned sands to glass, which was so sort of reminiscent of the firestorms in, in World War II in places like Dresden. So you had these three things, and it was like earth, water, fire, you know, that sort of like felt like the wrath of God, you know, Old Testament style. Lisbon had had, had, had a dozen significant quakes over the previous 400 years because of where it sits. But this was the big one. Accounts of the time talk about people, you know, 
stumbling around the streets covered in dust like they were you know, after September 11th in New York, completely dazed. And you know, it's all whipped up a major religious frenzy. You know, why here and why now? You know, this is a very religious city. It was on All Saints Day. This event reverberated across Europe in European thinking you know, with Goethe and, and, and Voltaire, as, as we know. The problem was that you know, central Lisbon was built on gravelly earth and it shifted and, and the whole thing just came down. While out at uh, Belém, Bethlehem, along the riverside where Geronimus stands, that suffered little damage because it was on solid rock, solid limestone rock. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, the great buildings that had been built, you know, the Opera House, the palace and all the rest of it, the treasured artworks, the books, the official records of the Age of Exploration, they were just lost you know, either in the quake and in the fire or whatever, in you know, the tsunami. The quake also ended up changing forever the tone and, and the tenor of the of a significant portion of, of the downtown district. King José I, who was in power at the time, was ruling at the time, he, he became a nervous wreck He was uh, because of the uh, quake. And he handed over the rebuilding to the Marquis of Pombal, who was, who was a, a towering figure in Portuguese history. He was the mastermind behind it all. He's on a, a pedestal, a very tall pedestal, in the middle of uh, Lisbon's uh, biggest roundabout in the downtown. And he was pretty much given carte blanche to do what he thought was best. Now, he was an, an enlightened despot, if you like. He was uncompromising, unshakable beliefs. He led ruthless crackdowns on schemers or anyone or any sort of perceived enemies. Uh, but at the same time, brought some very important reforms in education and in, in the public administration through his uh, secularization. Uh, you know, he really was part of the, of the rational enlightenment. He'd seen diplomatic service in London and Vienna. And the upshot of all that is that he rebuilt downtown Lisbon, or part of, a substantial part of it, in this, this very sober, symmetrical gridiron pattern, you know, which is a million miles from the, you know, those narrow, sinewy, Moorish streets we were talking about earlier. You know, this part of the downtown, as I say, gridiron patterns, neat as a pin, patrician scale, looks really like it belongs in Northern Europe, while right next to it, so you've got, you know, cheek by jowl, you've got this old part of Alfama, Moraria, which looked like they've dropped in, you know, landed from North Africa. You know, and that's one of the contrasts that make the city so so enthralling, really, so so interesting. Pombal, just as a, as a side note, he also introduced some novel ideas with uh, the team he was working with. One of them was called a gaiola, which means literally a kind of a birdcage. It's like a wooden trellis structure, which they incorporated into buildings to give them some uh, elasticity and, and, and help them resist quakes in the future. The Marcus de Pombal and his rebuilding work pretty much reshaped urban Lisbon, certainly sort of west and south of the Alfama, and, and it developed over the second half of the 18th century. By that point, revolution was brewing elsewhere in Europe, famously in France. How and when did that wave of revolution reach Lisbon? Yeah, well, it's arrived with a bang. Uh, <laughs> as winter approached in 1807, there was a frenzy along the riverside out along Belém, uh, where Geronimus stands, because Napoleon's army was bearing down on Lisbon. And anyone with money, power and influence was scrambling to get out. What they did, they put together their most valuable belongings, packed them all in crates. And the secret plan was to uproot Portugal and just replant it, if you like, 8,000 kilometers away in Brazil. And the, so the old continent went to the new continent uh, for survival. Of course, with British help, again, uh, Navy escort, because uh, for the Brits, uh, Portugal was always a, a precious foothold on a, on a sometimes hostile continent. But the, all these ships, uh, you know, the, made it out of Lisbon the day before Juno arrived at the gates of the city. One Portuguese historian called this uh, a Noah's Ark, uh, this fleet of ships. Another called it a funeral procession. There were seven caracks or galleons, uh, four frigates, three brigs, a schooner, two dozen merchant ships, all of them packed to the rafters. And off they went over the equator to set up a new home in Brazil. In fact, Queen Maria I of Portugal became the first European sovereign to enter the Southern Hemisphere. These were the early days of the Peninsular War, the start of a wretched century for Portugal, just unremitting turmoil. 
And again, Lisbon was stripped of its status and its treasures. It happened all over again. The echoes and the repercussions of the French Revolution, of course, were being felt across Europe. In 1820, there's a liberal revolution in uh, in Portugal, which brought the country's first election. King João VI, he'd been in Brazil for almost 14 years and finally came back in 1821. But while he was in Lisbon, his uh, son, Prince Pedro, declared Brazil's independence in his absence. And then in 1826, while the sixth died, Pedro was proclaimed King Pedro IV of Portugal. And then a challenge for the throne came from his exiled brother, Miguel. There was a civil war. There was then a liberal triumph in 1834, which brought a dissolution of the monasteries and convents. Their premises were taken over by public institutions. And the constitutional monarchy just couldn't stand in the way of all uh, that wave of, of change. In the 1830s, there was this uh, generation of new intellectuals emerged, uh, including Almeida Garrett, dramatist. And that's when the National Theatre came into being. That still stands in the square in Rocio, Queen Maria II National Theatre. It's worth mentioning here as well, by the way, that uh, the Ajuda Palace, which had actually been started being built in 1796, by 1826, it was only partly finished. In fact, it was only fully finished uh, in the last few years when the rear wall was finally completed. But it, it took so long, it started out as a Baroque palace and ended up as a neoclassical one. But it's, it's well worth a visit. It has a magnificent throne room, which is still used for, for state visits. A watershed moment came in the middle of the century, 1851. Duke of Saldana, great 19th century Portuguese statesman, he seized power in a military insurrection and brought about what's called the Regeneração, the regeneration, when Lisbon got new momentum after being sort of dormant for, for quite a long time, the first half of the century, really. A key figure in that government was a fellow called uh, Fonte Pereira de Mel, who still has streets named after him, avenues in, in Lisbon at One Avenue. He was the government minister of public works. He enabled Lisbon to sort of fatten out, stretched back from the river then with new avenues, new public transport, new drains and, and sewage networks. Another important person was the uh, chief engineer of the city council, Lisbon City Council, called Hassanu Garcia. He took his cue from Baron Haussmann's uh, ambitions in Paris, introducing parks and gardens and woodlands, the Avenida de Liberdad, the main avenue in Lisbon, which is like a mini Champs-Élysées. Later that century, Lisbon also got its uh, trademark funiculars, those trams that shunt up and down the hills, just going up and down, up and down, a sort of a couple of hundred meters all day long, just going up and down, uh, which are very popular with the tourists. Interesting, just to go back to this idea of the macrocephaly of Portugal, we're having Lisbon as such a dominant feature of the of the country. A famous Portuguese, perhaps the greatest Portuguese uh, novelist of the 19th century, Esther de Queiroz, he has one of his characters say, Lisbon is Portugal, there's nothing outside Lisbon. That's an often repeated phrase, even nowadays, and there's, there's a, there is a grain of truth in it, in fact. <laughs> So it sounds like the 19th century was a pretty turbulent one. And of course, the 20th was anything but peaceful as well. Can you talk us through the main events of, of that century? That's right, Paul. I mean, the start of this 20th, with the 20th century was no less dramatic. Once again, the action was centred on Lisbon, as it uh, only could be. And as so often, the action was centred on the riverside. 1908, a, a royal carriage was waiting for the king King Carlos and his queen and his, uh, his two princes, two sons, in the in the main square, Praça do Comércio, which used to be where the palace was. They arrived there coming on, on a trip from the countryside, uh, from a hunting trip, for sort of late in the afternoon on, on, on a Saturday. They got into an open carriage, which began trotting along the, the western side of the square, heading towards the uh, Necessidad's palace, which is where the foreign minister is. As they were going along, a chap called uh, Manuel Buisa, 32-year-old primary school teacher with a big bushy beard, he stepped out from behind one of Lisbon's trademark dark green uh, street kiosks, which still exist today. He pulled a, a bolt-action rifle from beneath his cloak, crouched on one knee and fired. His shot hit the king in the throat and shattered his spine, uh, killed him instantly. His co-conspirator, a chap called Alfredo Costa, who was a clerk, age 24, he leaped up onto the landau of the carriage on the other side. He also shot the monarch uh, with a Browning revolver. Prince Luis Philippe, who was seven weeks shy of his 21st birthday and the heir to the throne, he pulled out a colt that he had on him, but Costa shot him in the chest and then another shot from Buisa hit the prince in the face. 
the carriage driver galloped off to the Navy Arsenal, which is just around the corner where it still stands. But the king and the prince were pronounced dead there. And as you can imagine, the slaying in the Lisbon street of, of Portugal's king and his firstborn son made the front pages of newspapers across Europe. The carriage they were riding in is, is today on display at the National Carriage Museum in Lisbon, which is well worth a visit. And you can still see the, the bullet holes from that attack in the side of the carriage. At the, at the corner where this actually happened, there's a stone plaque on the wall which uh, very tersely announces that on that spot the king and the prince died for their country, quote-unquote. Oddly, the, this little plaque is, is too high up on the wall for, for most passers-by even to notice it. It's actually quite, quite hard to read as well. But that was all a starting gun for more unrest during that century, including the, the Republican Revolution of 1910. The revolution brought bloodshed and barricades and cannon fire into the streets of downtown Lisbon. There's still a, a mark of a cannon shell, the necessidades at the foreign ministry uh, in the room with the head of protocol. There were 60 people killed, 700 wounded in, in that fighting. King Manuel fled, and, and that was that for the Portuguese monarchy. So famously, most of the, or about half of the 20th century was dominated by one dictatorship. Can you explain how that came to power and what transpired under the rule of Salazar? Yeah, Salazar, it's, it's a funny thing. There's nothing to see now of Salazar. You know, he's the bad guy. He's the doesn't fit the narrative. People don't talk about him. It's, it's like the embarrassing old relation. But but in fact, his fingerprints are all over the city in a sense. The story goes like this. I mean, there was another military coup in 1926. Salazar at that time, Antonio Salazar, was a professor at Coimbra University. They named him as finance minister, but he only lasted two weeks before he resigned because it, everything was such a mess. It was political uh, madness. I mean, everyone was arguing all the time and resigning and, uh, and what, what have you. He rejoined the government again in 1928, but lasted only a year. But then he came back and he incredibly managed to balance the books. He put the Portuguese budget back in order. It was no longer in debt. And the military was so impressed by this that they appointed him the head of government in 1932. Salazar, if you've seen any any videos of him or photographs, he was very dry and gaunt with a pinched voice. He really looked like a rural clergyman. But everyone underestimated him. That was a great mistake. I mean, not only in Portugal, but also abroad in Europe and the United States. And he ended up staying until in, in power until 1968. You know, through that turbulent period, that late, the latest turbulent period, you know, even Fernando Pessoa, uh, the great Portuguese 20th century writer, poet mostly, even he thought Portugal needed a military dictatorship because the people were just too unruly. Pessoa, by the way, is is like is sort of to Lisbon is is like James Joyce is to Dublin or Franz Kafka is to Prague. He's a fascinating personality. Wrote a lot about Lisbon. A good book to get by him is, which is translated into English, is the Book of Disquiet. It's it's kind of like prose poetry, ruminations, observations about the city. It's uh, sometimes it's a bit whimsical, almost. But at the same time, it's very deep, philosophical, thoughtful. And so well worth a read. But just going back to Salazar, you know, he, he kept Portugal out of World War II. He was very wily. One of the consequences of that, of course, was that Lisbon became what, what was known at the time as Europe's quayside because of all the refugees fleeing the Nazis coming out this way to get out of, of Europe, and mostly to the United States, of course. Amid all that, there was one remarkable event in, in 1940 when Salazar, even though there was, you know, great hardship in Portugal, even though it wasn't involved in the war, there were short shortages and, and rationing. But he put on the Portuguese World Exhibition, like a World's Fair kind of thing, staged out in Belém, again, of course, uh, near Jerónimos. It opened the same day that Hitler toured Paris. And so it was a very odd sort of moment, you know, here very peaceful, very quiet. His aim was to show off the empire. I mean, it, it was chosen in 1940 to mark the founding of Portugal in 1140, and then the restoration of independence in 1640. A first version of the Riverside uh, Monument to the Discoveries, which is you know a very much photographed uh, tourist site in Lisbon. It's like a, it's in the shape of a sort of a caravel poking out over the river, a sort of billowing sail above it with statues of, of thirty-two. 
Portuguese heroes alongside it, like Henry the Navigator, Vasco da Gama, etc. And that's what is left from that exhibition. Salazar had a great public works minister, another one gone down in Portuguese history, called Duarte Pacheco. He extended and improved Lisbon, gave it another spurt, uh, with new housing estates, new sanitation. He built an important viaduct, which still leads west on the motorway out west of the city. He built the National Stadium, the National Library, Lisbon Airport, which is still just on the edge of town. That'll be one of the only capitals in Europe where, you know, you, you fly right over the city's roofs to land. He built the Royal Mint, the Lisbon University campus, and it was all in a very new state style. Uh, Salazar created this, what, Estado Novo, the new states. This style was very sort of inspired by the Nazis, who at the beginning of the 1930s, Salazar was close to, but then moved away from as they saw they were losing. And it's, it's very sort of brutalist architecture, no, nothing fancy, no, no frills uh, like Salazar himself. But he also built these little homely little housing estates with sort of handkerchief-sized gardens. But the main contribution in, in visual terms, at least from that period, is the suspension bridge I mentioned before, which looks like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. That was, was built in 1966 and called Salazar Bridge. But his time not his, but his regimes would come to an end in uh, on April the 25th, 1974, the, the Carnation Revolution, as it's called, which is a, a revolt. It's also known as the Captain's Revolt because it was by disgruntled junior officers with the overseas wars as a backdrop. Portugal was fighting to keep the independence movements down in uh, in, in Africa, especially, you know, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, and Mozambique, etc. So, so on that day, April the 25th of 74, Lisbon woke up to tanks in the streets all of a sudden with no hint that, then, that anything was afoot. The pretty uh, Largo do Carmo Square in Chiado, in the Chiado district of Lisbon, which is a very pretty area, very sort of bohemian cultural area. Now this, this, this square has lots of little nice restaurants around it, lots of trees. That became the epicenter of the revolution. On that day, it was where President Marcelo Cayetano would replace Salazar after his death, who was holed up. And it was there were such wonderful Portuguese scenes of that day. You know, you have tanks in the streets, the army pointing to their guns, machine guns, and artillery at this police building where the, uh, or mil- semi-military, uh, paramilitary building where the president was holed up. And there are children, there are people standing around, people up trees, on, climbing up lampposts to watch what was going on. In effect, Portuguese society was stood on its head overnight within 24 hours, really, and only five people were killed. And of course, once that had happened, any mention of, of Salazar was stripped uh, away, the name of the bridge, the, all the names of the streets. Of course, with African independence, then the success of, of the revolution, they quickly granted independence to the African colonies, the five African colonies. And then what happened was uh, people wanted to go, the Portuguese who were over there, and, and under the colonial regime, wanted to come back, obviously worried what would happen to them. And again, we had crates stacked up along the riverside, like the early 19th century, when the Napoleon's army was coming in, but this time they were arriving, not leaving. These people, they're called in Portuguese retornados, uh, sort of like the Pierre Noir uh, for the French. A half a million of them came back in and were absorbed incredibly with, with no violence, no, no real social disruption. Many people went to stay with family, but the government in Lisbon had to requisition hotels to, to put a lot of them up. Um, even the Ritz, which was Lisbon's first big European standard hotel, was a landmark in the 1950s and is still there and has some very interesting art inside. It's worth mentioning as a milestone as well, in 1998, there's the World Fair in Lisbon, which brought about what was called Lisbon's Big Bang, the Lisbon Big Bang, what I referred to earlier with the underground extension and those burrowing machines that threw up all this evidence of, uh, you know, Romans and uh, Phoenicians, brought about a makeover uh, for the industrial east of the city, which was swept away. And now, is mostly offices and, and upscale riverside apartments. The fair's main legacy was the Vasco da Gama Bridge, which was Europe's longest at the time. It's a great sweeping bridge, say, 14 kilometers long. It's very sort of can-do, wind-in-your-hair kind of monument almost, which sort of stood for a, a wider retooling uh, of the city and, and, and the country itself. Well, that was a very fulsome rapid run through of a couple of millennia of history there in in Lisbon. Let's move on to your personal recommendations. I'd like you to share five sites in Lisbon that each reveal something about the city's past and and to explain the historical significance of each to listeners. I've mentioned them 
already, I think, but I'll just run through them quickly. I think it's places you have to visit, let's put it that way. Obviously, it's St. George's Castle. I mean, it's, it's like a crow's nest up there, but it's, you know, it, it, it shows you why Lisbon is where it is. And it's, it's funny because you've got the city at your feet. You, you feel like you throw a stone, it would land in Rossio Square just about. And you can see the, you know, the patchwork of terracotta roofs. If you get the light right, if you go early in the morning or, or in the evening, the light is wonderful. You get the, you know, that soft glow of the yellowish stone of, uh, of the castle itself. But then you get the wonderful light off the river and the sea. It really is, can be quite uh, quite enchanting. Secondly, I'd say you have to go to the Geronimus Monastery uh, and the cloisters just behind it as well. The church and the monastery, I mean, they are magnificent. The, the church has a very tall, high ceiling with tall columns. Started in 1501, took more than 100 years to complete. It's the home of Vasco da Gama's tomb as well. And it's also the best place to see what the Manuel, Manuel Ein style from King Manuel is. You know, this sort of rich, detailed, ornate stone carving. As I mentioned before, the Ajuda Palace is well worth a visit. I mean, it took 240 years to build, so it must be good. It has a collection of royal treasure, which is quite stunning, especially the gold and diamonds from Brazil, but also lots of you know textiles uh, and, and stuff from Japan and what have you. Fourthly, let me say the aqueduct, which in itself is quite, you know, as I mentioned before, it's it's sober. It's not de- decorative at all. It's plain and it's to the point, but it's it's stunning. I mean, it's an emphatic reminder of the, of the bounty that Brazilian gold afforded to the capital. Its splendor comes it's from its sheer size. I mean, the, the city traffic snakes through its legs even today. And, you know, what's said to be the biggest stone arch of its kind in the world is the Arco Grande, the big arch, which is 65 metres high and 28 metres wide. Uh, it's, it's said to have three keystones, and they say that only a special sound can sunder them. It's not known what that sound is, but obviously it's not the sound of an earthquake because it, uh, it survived that. And lastly, I would say perhaps the Belain, a more modern thing, the Belain Cultural Centre, which is just close to Jeronimsch. In some ways, the building itself is a, is a lost opportunity. It's quite forgettable architecturally. Of course, it couldn't subtract from Jeronimsch Monastery next to it. But it does have some very interesting events and collections, a wonderful collection of modern art, and also concert halls, if you're interested. Well, those are five places to look for next time we visit Lisbon. Finally, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to the city? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that. I mean, of course, you've got to go down to the Pastéis de Belém to have a custard tarts down there in Belém near to Jerónimos. I think, you know, thinking about it, I couldn't come up with one so one thing. I would just say, I think this, you know, Lisbon is an ideal city for the flaneur. You know, Baudelaire would have loved this place just to walk around, just to soak up the atmosphere, to see all the, as I say, this cultural broth that you find in Lisbon with, you know, people living together in, it sounds corny, but in peace and harmony. You know, Lisbon's a very safe city. Never get any, it feels like you never get any trouble here. So it's all very calm and relaxed and you can just take your time and just soak it all up. That was Barry Hatton, author of Queen of the Sea, A History of Lisbon published by Seahurst & Co and available now. Thanks, Barry, and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.